0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Getting businesses more involved. That if they have a bigger role in helping to combat the crisis, that maybe people would be more open to talking about addiction and problems and open to more ways to manage it other than turning to illegal street drugs. So are there ways to do that? For a business person, how do you even have that conversation with your employees? Like, where do you start? Well, there's an organization in Langley that actually helps companies by educating them about the overdose crisis. It's called We All Play a Role. And the project coordinator, Daniel Snyder, is with us now to talk about that. Good morning, Daniel. Hi, Sammy. Good morning. How did you get started doing this?
2: So, we have an action table in Langley that's focused on the overdose response, and one of the things that I'm personally most passionate about is helping people understand uh, substance use and addiction. And I come from a past of being addicted to heroin, 15 years myself, so... As someone who's very interested in sharing my own story, I realized I, I had a role to play myself, and that I could uh, speak to businesses and organizations, nonprofits, churches in our community, and help them understand what's what's really going on here and how they can play a role.
1: How did you manage to conquer your addiction? What happened?
2: Well, there's the there's the long story, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's a process. Uh, it's that's the main thing that I try to tell people about overcoming addictions it's it's a journey it's not a uh you know one and done uh into a treatment center and out and then you're good to go uh you know I look back at the history of my life and I see an upwards trend that had a lot of ups and downs but there was progress being made and the big theme in that and this is what we talk about in our presentations is uh having healthy connection points so I believe all the responses that we have put out towards the overdose crisis need to be centered in connecting with the individuals who are struggling. And uh, a lot of our past approach to responding to addiction has been to actually cut people off. So uh, like you've mentioned um, Imprisoning people is, is just another form of disconnection um, when people fear arrest, then they are going to be isolating and hiding. So decriminalizing plays some role in right. that. But also our, our, um, our cultural approach of, you know, tough love and we're just going to we want nothing to do with you until you get your act together. So those approaches are, are, are positively counterproductive. And uh, I always just encourage us to find a way to connect with people in a healthy manner.
1: Okay, but why do you think businesses can help? And honestly, if you're a business owner or a manager, like where do you even start?
2: So businesses don't typically want to uh, believe that there could be substance use going on within their ranks. I think often when we approach businesses, there there's a denial that... Um, People might be using drugs uh, within their company. Like your guest yesterday mentioned, Kirk LaPointe, that um, while it's their customers, it's their supply chain, uh, it's the people that they might be dealing with on a basis. So we framed the we all play a role project in in just trying to inspire and motivate businesses to realize that, okay, if you're not going to take a look within – why don't you take a look uh, without? What role can you play in the community as a community leader in responding to this crisis? And so often we've had businesses approach us that see it from the perspective of uh, the, the observable part of this overdose crisis. So they have people sleeping outside or um, perhaps someone's overdosed in front of their business. And therefore they, they kind of get a bit motivated to realize that they have a, a role to play in that respect. When they invite us in, they start to learn more about the individuals who are at risk and the people that are are dying, a large percentage of whom are employed, uh, men in trades, people with jobs, people like myself. When I was in addiction, I was never homeless or um, without a job. I always kind of maintained my addiction, and uh, most people around me didn't know. Really? So you
1: managed to keep that hidden. And do you think that's what's going on for a lot of people out there today?
2: Uh, Certainly it is. Um, I mean, I come from some privilege. And so I had the financial means to maintain uh, an expensive drug habit. And I also knew that if certain individuals found out about it, uh, that I would be just completely discredited in their eyes. I had this drive to maintain some kind of reputation uh, whatever that might have looked like and so i was and i was also consumed by uh you know a strong sense of shame because i wasn't happy with the life i was living so it was there was definitely a motivation right. to, to stay hidden and keep it a secret yeah
1: so it, so when you look at businesses today then like what kind of businesses are you helping who's coming to you for advice on this
2: well, we'll go to anyone. Um, what, who I would really love to challenge and uh, reach out to more is the trades. Uh, men in trades are really disproportionately affected by the overdose crisis. We've, we've spoken with uh, and trained landscaping companies, construction companies, ESL schools, um, all sorts of businesses in our community and uh, we're open to speaking with anyone, but I found um, mostly that it's, uh, it's businesses that feel they've somehow been impacted in some way already. And that, for me, is, uh, you know, I would love to get in there before that has happened, before they've lost someone in their, in their ranks to an right. overdose. and before, So, yeah.
1: I guess the key then, Daniel, is convincing these businesses, these industries, that, you know, the, the crisis is not outside of your industry. It very well could be your employees.
2: 100%. And, you know, one of the things that we've done uh, is we often conflate this crisis specifically with addiction. And substance use, the overdose crisis, it's not all about addiction. There's plenty of people who recreationally uh, use substances, don't develop addictions, don't have problematic problems arising in their life as a result of that use. And so we need to acknowledge that those people are really at a high level of risk, and they do exist, but they're not going to be open about their substance use uh, in this climate with the, with the stigma that exists out there related to it.
1: Right, That's a really good point, though, because we know that those are some of the cases, right? Those are, some of, those are quite a few of the overdoses too.
2: Most of the people I've personally known that have died were not dealing with a substance use disorder. They were occasional partiers, Once or twice a year, they'd pick up something at a party. And uh, that's just the risk level attached to that right now is like it's never been before.
1: So what would you say then to someone in one of those trades industries or even a business owner, Daniel, about why they should pay attention to this?
2: Well, people have potential. And no matter where they're at in their lives, there is hope for them. Uh, if you'd known me those years ago, um, you might've felt like, well, this guy's not going to go anywhere. Uh, and I've seen so many people completely change their lives to the point of being unrecognizable and they're productive, contributing, uh, healthy members of our society today. They, they do a lot of good and we, businesses don't want to lose productivity. I think that's been one of the main challenges with, with connecting with businesses is that when they, when they sit with us, they're taking a time out for an hour, an hour and a half, where their employees are getting paid and they're not being productive in their jobs. And they see that perhaps as a, as a negative, as a loss. And we would like them to see that this is tremendous value for them in terms of playing a role in the community uh, in saving lives. And I have countless stories of individuals who, just on a practical side of this, have uh, learned how to use naloxone, have have got a naloxone kit, and have saved a life as a result. And that person now has another opportunity. And a lot of people disparage that. You know, when you go online and you read comments about uh, people being revived, uh, there's a lot of negativity around it. But I'm I'm personally an overdose survivor, and I believe that everyone deserves another opportunity to live.
1: Listen, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us this morning and telling your story. Yeah, my pleasure. appreciate that. Daniel Snyder is the project coordinator for an organization called We All Play a Role. So they do presentations. They try to engage employers and employees to have conversations about the opioid crisis. So not just about addiction, as he put it, which I think is a a fantastic point to make. It's not necessarily about a substance use addiction. It's also very much about people who recreationally use, who don't fully understand the danger that they are in. And we know with this public health crisis that there is danger in the use of any street drugs these days. Now, if you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Very interesting couple of weeks at the Cullen Commission. That, of course, is our inquiry into money laundering in this province. So last week, we heard the testimony of former Premier Christy Clark. Uh, We heard the opposition leader, Shirley Bond, also in there because she had a brief time, I think, back in 2011, where she was in charge of gaming in the province. Uh, Today, we're hearing from David Eby. He was testifying yesterday at the Cullen
3: Commission. Let's find out what he had to say. Here's John Hua. In 2015, the amount of suspicious cash being reported in BC casinos was on a meteoric rise. When then opposition critic for gaming David Eby was offered a tour of the River Rock. He said the BC Lottery Corporation's message was, money laundering was not a concern.
4: The discussion was that there um, it was functionally impossible to launder money through BC casinos because of all the safeguards in place.
3: Fast forward to 2017 when a change in provincial government made E.B. the minister in charge. Now BC's Attorney General, E.B. told the commission in his initial briefings, BCLC's story hadn't changed.
4: Okay, were you left with the impression that there was any level of concern about uh, the issue of suspicious cash entry casinos and the potential that British Columbia casinos might be used to launder proceeds of crime? No, just the opposite.
3: But the briefing with the gaming regulator took on a completely different tone.
4: And here, I was being told that not only was it possible, uh, but it was happening and it was ongoing.
3: That's when EB was first shown videos of bags of cash being dumped at the casino cash cages. And it was explained dirty money could still be laundered even when high rollers lost, because the debt would be repaid one way or another.
4: The core of it being that GPEB wanted more severe restrictions and that the BC Lottery Corporation did not.
3: The difference in perspectives between BCLC and GPEB led EB to hire Peter German to review the issue and try to bridge the gap.
4: I had um, difficulty understanding uh, which of the organizations I could turn to and rely on in terms of the best recommendations going forward.
3: Despite a concern that dirty money might still be making its way into BC casinos, EB told the commission allowing German the time to deal with the issue was a justified delay in action.
4: I was concerned about that, but I was uh, equally concerned uh, that the actions that I took uh, might have unintended consequences.
3: Eve also faced questions on whether Peter German may have been too close to the issue as a senior RCMP official when key policing decisions around casinos were made.
4: So did you consider whether uh, given the positions he had held in the RCMP at relevant times, he might be perceived by some to have a conflict of interest? Uh,
3: yes. Eby adding he was also aware German may have had previous training contracts with both BCLC and GPEP. The need to possibly scrutinise a former employer not seen as an issue.
4: I selected Dr. German because he had that knowledge, because he had those connections.
3: In cross examination, Eby was pressed on his criticism of the BCLC and public statements that the previous government turned a blind eye.
2: Hindsight's always twenty twenty,
3: or usually. It's well, any. I didn't. Uh... Mr. Smart, with respect, I I didn't
4: need hindsight with respect to the proceeds of crime allegedly coming into B.C. casinos.
3: But looking back, EB added if any efforts were made to stop B.C. casinos from becoming hotbeds for money laundering, publicly denying there was a problem certainly didn't
0: help. John Hua, Global News. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Talk about real estate. I've noticed a lot more listings available right now. I don't think things are going are being snapped up as in a crazy fashion the way they were a couple of months ago. But I mean, you tell me what you see in your neighborhood, Send me at cknw.com. Meanwhile, though, with the prices that have gone up and up and up, it's very clear that it is pricing people out of the market. Economists at the Bank of Montreal recently issued a report citing the need to break that market psychology and the belief that prices will only rise further to try to dampen speculation and the fear of missing out that those expectations are creating. In other words, it's kind of fueling itself, right? People start to feel like they're going to miss out. Oh, I better buy now because it's only going to get more expensive. And then you have that frenzy of things going higher and higher. But there are some worrying signs in the housing market according to the Bank of Canada Governor. We are going to talk more about what's going on out there. Adil Danani joins us now with Royal LePage West Real Estate Services. Adil, thanks for being back with us.
5: My pleasure Simi, thanks for having me.
1: What do you see going on in the market right now? Is it as crazy as it was a couple of months ago?
5: So I think there's some relief um, on the horizon. Um, I think that's the good news. I think what's happening is markets, you know, oftentimes can sort themselves out. You know, we've seen, um, we've seen a tremendous amount of price growth in the market over the last twelve months. We have surpassed all uh, price points and different segments that were, you know, pre-pandemic prices. We've surpassed all those price points. So, we certainly are at um, prices that most people in our industry didn't anticipate to be at. Um, single-family market has, has um, you know, probably uh, increased 15% plus in the last 12 months. But what's happening now is as, as sellers are starting to acknowledge that prices have gone higher, some have decided to put the homes on the market. And we're starting to see some more inventory come onto the market.
1: And so that's, so that's creating, that, a, that means that yeah, there's it's little it's a little bit more competition.
5: A, exactly. It's having a cooling effect And it's putting like a a, kind of a a dampen uh, damp. It's creating a dampening effect on price growth, which is exactly what we need to see. That's the start of the market kind of stabilizing.
1: Okay, but then how do you manage the expectations of those sellers who think they're going to get the same price as their neighbors did,
5: you know, six months ago? It's a really good question, (laughs) and you know we're in that transition period right now, where um, oftentimes. And again, this is specific to each neighbourhood. Some neighbourhoods have more supply than others. You know, um, some areas are still seeing extremely strong demand because, you know, there is no supply. So um, this isn't kind of a broad stroke kind of exercise. It's really specific to, to sub-area. But, um, but, but, but agents, you know, um, us being frontline practitioners, we have to really educate sellers. Um, we're seeing this in the Fraser Valley, which saw the strongest price growth. Uh, we are starting to see more inventory come on and, and we just have to educate sellers to let them know that you may not be able to achieve exactly what you were hoping to get or your right. neighbor got 30 days ago because the market has, has changed a bit since then.
1: But it's also leaving a lot of people out of the market, don't you think, Adele? Like younger people, I I fear that they are kind of losing faith that they're ever going to be able to buy into the market with its behavior.
5: Um, yeah, it is challenging. I mean, what we've di- what we have seen is 've seen um, we've seen the on the federal level um, we've seen tighter um, or stricter stress test requirements being imposed as of June 1st so they are you know listening to what you know at the federal level they are listening to what's happening um, here locally and and you know to so me the, the the price quote's really happening it's across the board um, and I think the main kind of uh, segments or areas that are that have that have shown up in price are like the energy centers in Canada you know British uh, Vancouver um, you have uh, Toronto Montreal you're seeing incredible price growth and of course the periphery markets benefit from what's happening in the energy centers so for example in Vancouver when you see such tremendous price growth you have um, you know the Okanagan Valley benefiting you have um, Vancouver right. Island Victoria benefiting.
1: So I guess they have to look, you just hope that people don't lose faith in their, like, if they really want a home that you're saying somewhere, someplace, there's a home for them?
5: There, There is. Um, I think you have to be creative on your home search. If you're a first-time homebuyer, I wouldn't necessarily lose the faith. I think, of course, as a, as a home buyer, you have to have flexibility. Um, there are some wonderful things happening further east. You know, yeah. that migration east we've talked about um, in previous calls um, and interviews is that, you know, there are great things happening. Like if, you, if your initial intention was to be in the city or to be in Burnaby, right. for example, and you're realizing that you're not going to be able to achieve what you want, maybe going out to the Tri-Cities or maybe even areas like, you know, Maple Ridge and Mission, which have been, you know, true hotspots yeah. um, as people, you know, look for more space And look for areas that are connected i mean mission maple ridge still connected via um, the west coast express so you have some wonderful options but you do have to have some flexibility as a home buyer
1: as always adil thank you
0: thank you Simi. this is mornings with simi
1: the vancouver school board voted eight to one last night to end its school liaison police officer program and remove those uniformed police officers from the city's schools Now, this decision came following months of debate on this issue. The school board had conducted a review of police in schools last year. They had ordered an independent third party to even speak to students about it, including those who identify as Black, Indigenous, and people of colour, because they wanted to collect opinions on uniformed police officers in schools. So we're going to talk about this reaction. We'll be speaking with a member of the Vancouver School Board coming up. Right now, joining us is Markeel Simpson, a longtime critic of the liaison program, member of the BC Community Alliance Steering Committee. Mark Hill, thanks for being back with us.
6: Thanks for having me.
1: So what did you think of the decision last night? You must have been pleased.
6: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's been a long time coming um, for thousands in the community organizing specifically around this issue. And so I'm, I'm really pleased uh, with the outcome as insofar as police being removed from schools and the SLO program uh, being terminated. However, there is still um, a few concerns that are being voiced from the communities affected, Um, mainly uh, the the end of the motion where it speaks to the Vancouver uh, Police Department and Vancouver School Board's ongoing relationship. And I think that that still requires some further clarity.
1: Right, because my impression that I got was they were looking forward to developing a new kind of relationship. Is that what you're talking about?
6: Yeah, and that's the point that kind of goes against the spirit of the motion that I think people are concerned about. And so we're, we're hoping that the outcome is that the school liaison program is, is ending forever now and cops will be permanently out of schools. But that remains to be seen. And so we'll be following that for the next several uh, months ahead.
1: Right, but is there a way, do you think, Keel, for the police to still have any kind of relationship with the schools without them being in the schools every day?
6: Uh, a relationship with the Vancouver School Board in general or with students? With students. I think that um, that will have to be decided upon by students and maybe outside of um, school-sanctioned events and, and that those relationships, like, if they want to have their... Um, you know, the police camp and training camps and everything, that they can go about advertising that in other ways than through schools as their main avenue, just like um, the Army can't advertise within high schools.
1: Right. So what would you tell the Vancouver School Board then? I mean, if they're talking about having a new relationship, what do you think they need to keep in mind?
6: I think they need to keep in mind the voices of, uh, the people who are being harmed by the program and being harmed by police and and why they felt the issue to organize around this for for such a long time in, in hopes of getting rid of cops in schools and reducing that harm. And so wh- when it talks about centering the voices of BIPOC communities, uh, I think that we're going to have the same result. And so what it seems is that the Vancouver School Board wants to have Conversations more so at an institutional level than at a level uh, with with stakeholders such as students.
1: Right. Have we heard enough? Do you think, Markiel, from actual the police on this from the Vancouver Police Department?
6: Um, I think so. I, I'm not sure that the police department's voice really needs to be centered in this. You know, when students are being harmed in a place of learning, and uh, that that can be stopped, then that should be our number one objective. Uh, police are yet to account for the harm and and to speak to the harms that they continue to do uh, to young people throughout the city, but uh, the the harms that have been done in schools.
1: So Marquille, give us an idea for people who have not heard these stories. What did you hear from some of the students about the impact that these programs have had on them?
6: Um, well, I've heard, and I encourage everybody to go back to the Vancouver School Board meetings where people speak about this, and I, I can't really speak too much to other people's experiences, but there's been acute incidences of physical harm to students from, um, from police. There's been incidences of police um, sexually abusing or, or being suspected of sexually abusing students, from what I understand, uh, and several other problematic things that are putting students at harm. And, and beyond that is the perception of police for some communities and uh, the discomfort that they feel walking by them and being forced to engage with them on a daily basis.
1: Is that what's going on? Like, I remember when this program started, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to be a place where students could go to talk if they needed help or needed something. What what happened?
6: I think that um, between the memorandum of understanding and the schools, that the that it's been lost in application what the purpose of the SLO program is is um, I think and and we've seen that a lot from uh, members of the public citing like public safety concerns et cetera. But that wasn't initially the the spirit of the SLO program. It was more to be educational, and now we see it transforming into. Um, programs as that was a lot of the cited benefits of extracurricular programs, but those are definitely programs that can be continued by civilians. And I encourage civilians to get involved in their local communities and in their schools so that we can have those resources, but also to, to trustees to instead of going to the police for additional resources to speak with their municipal governments and with the provincial government to get more resources because clearly education is being underfunded.
1: So, Mark Hill, this is one school district then. What about other school districts?
6: Well, other school districts, not every school district has a school liaison officer program, so other school districts aren't necessarily in the same situation. But it sets a stronger precedent, I think, for for school districts who currently do have an SLO program and are considering eliminating it.
1: All right. So, Markeel, thanks so much for your time on that this morning.
6: Thank you. Have a great day.
1: You too. That's Markeel Simpson, member of the BC Community Alliance Steering Committee. They have been speaking out often and widely about the issue of school liaison officers. So the Vancouver School Board last night voted 8 to 1 to end their school liaison officer program with the Vancouver Police Department. And as you heard Mark Hill say there, he has a little bit of a concern over what the Vancouver School Board said, and that is that they were hoping to develop a new relationship with the police. What does that look like? Is this the complete end of working with the police department for the school board? Is there a better
0: way to do this? This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We've been talking this morning about the decision by the Vancouver school board last night, eight to one was the vote to get rid of the school liaison program. That's where officers from the police department are stationed in schools. It's a program that's been around for a long time, but they are now going to be doing away with it. But they did say they look forward to developing a new relationship. So what does that look like? So let's talk more about this. Now joining us is Carmen Cho, the chair of the Vancouver school board. Thank you very much for being here.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Can you give us an idea of what were some of the things that you heard from students about their concerns for having this program in schools? Like what made you want to vote the way that you did?
7: So certainly uh, we had a very robust engagement process where we heard from over 1,900 participants. We had three evenings of delegations. We received numerous letters and had phone calls and conversations. And at the board last night, the meeting that we had a motion in front of us and the board decided to discontinue the program at the end of June, but look towards establishing a new relationship with police services that does support the safety, security, and inclusion of all of our students.
1: Okay, what does that look like though?
7: Well, this is where the work begins. So these, we have now work to do where we need to continue conversations with uh, VPD and RCMP to establish a relationship going forward based on the feedback we heard and those ways that we can support our students.
1: I guess that's part of the concern. We were just speaking with uh, Mark Hill uh, Simpson, who was saying that he's worried that there is going to be a continuing relationship. How do you find that balance between what works and what the community in, some people in the community are concerned about?
7: So for the Vancouver School Board, the safety, security, and inclusion of our students is our number one priority. So we are committed to doing that work. We know that the relationship needs to change. We heard that feedback, but we also understand and are grateful for the relationship we have had with the VPD over the years and their commitment to the safety of our students.
1: Okay, but what does that look like then moving forward? How do you envision that changing?
7: well, this is where we're going to have to have ongoing conversations with the VPD and the RCMP to establish that new relationship. Hmm. What did you hear from people about that? We heard a plethora of feedback ranging from people strongly in support, people who felt very neutral about the program, and certainly we did hear from Black and Indigenous students that they do feel less safe in schools, so we want to acknowledge the feedback that we heard from all of our students and thank them for sharing that with us. We know that was not easy for people to come and share their lived experience.
1: Okay, is there going to be a concrete process moving forward then? Because will the public have an input into what this potential new relationship looks like?
7: So as we have conversations, we will be involving our stakeholders, our community partners, and we are committed to sharing information as we move along. The motion was just passed last evening, so I don't have concrete um, information for you on what the exact next steps are. I think we need to initiate a conversation first to determine what the process will look like going forward.
1: Right, but you must have feelings about this. Like, what are your thoughts about what you heard?
7: As I said, we heard so much from people, and we are just so grateful for all of the feedback. It's not easy to come and share your feedback in a very public forum. So I think the board took a tremendous amount of time and care and were very thoughtful and deliberate in making this decision.
1: Was there something that you personally heard though that convinced you that change needed to come? Like there must have been a story that stayed with you, a student story or something that made you decide to do
7: this? We heard so many stories that were so impactful to all of us, people who their experience with the VPD had changed their lives in a very positive way and others who had experienced really intense emotions because police were in school. So those were, that was the gamut of feedback that we did receive and we took all of that information into account in making this decision.
1: Now what was the original idea for putting police officers in schools? Like why did this program ever come about?
7: Well, the program is almost fifty years old, and I think you know that speaks to why looking at the relationship with a fresh set of eyes after fifty years is probably an important step to take. Um, certainly, you know, there was a a relationship that was established. I think they wanted to have a connection with students. There were a multitude of reasons why the program originated, but over time things do change. And I think we recognize that the relationship needs to change and be modernized to reflect the needs of students in 2021 and going forward.
1: Right. Did you hear things though? Did you hear that some people did work? Like, were there instances where you thought, okay, the program came in handy?
7: we absolutely heard positive experiences and we heard experiences where people felt traumatized by the officers being in schools we heard both sides absolutely and that's what made this such a difficult decision
1: what kind of control so did the school board have with this program like was there an ongoing communication relationship with the VPD could you ask questions could you like was there a, a back and forth of information in regards to the program
7: Yes, certainly the VPD has been sharing information with us. If trustees have had questions, they've been more than willing to ask. Uh, The superintendent didn't come and speak as a delegation twice to the board, so we have been sharing information along the way.
1: So what is your goal then, moving forward? Like, what do you want to see happen?
7: Our goal is to support a new relationship with police services. We want to ensure the safety, security, and inclusion of all of our students, and we look forward to this partnership with the VPD going forward.
1: Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Carmen Cho, the chair of the Vancouver School Board, talking about the vote last night, 8 to 1, to uh, get rid of the school liaison program. Yeah, I was kind of hitting my head against the wall on that one, too, because it just seems like reading off of a piece of paper and not actually telling us, getting to the heart of what you heard, how you feel about this. You know, obviously, some of those stories must have been very moving to make trustees decide to do this. And I think the big question now is, what does it look like moving forward? Why can't someone just say, here's how we hope this would work in the future?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You know, last week was a really fascinating week because we saw that age threshold for the optional AstraZeneca vaccine uh, be lowered down to 40. So you saw this rush of people, you know, the Gen Xers and the slightly younger than Gen Xers rush out to go out and get it. And they were very kind of vocal on social media about that. So did that have an impact on how people are viewing that particular vaccine? Well, Angus Reid has been polling on this and Shachi Curl, the president, joins us now to talk about that. Good morning, Shachi. Morning, Simi. So do you think that had an impact because it was so big on social media last week, right? So many people saying I got the AstraZeneca vaccine.
8: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not what I think it's what the data show us and indeed what we have seen is a pretty significant increase in the amount of comfort that people feel with AstraZeneca right now uh, relative to where it was a couple of weeks ago. So this time three, four weeks ago, every story about vaccines was an AstraZeneca story. It was about blood clots or it was about which uh, public health authority had said that, you know, it is safe. It isn't safe to use where it should be deployed. Uh, and in the midst of all of that, you really saw, uh, public health officials and doctors losing the narrative or, or being in a situation where they were at risk of really losing the narrative on AstraZeneca. Uh, about two weeks ago, we were doing some polling and found that you know 60% of Canadians said they weren't comfortable taking AstraZeneca, and if it was the only option available to them, uh, you know, of that group, six, uh, 25%. So a quarter of them said, you know what, I won't, I won't take it. Then we saw that opening up. Uh, of of the vaccine to younger people, to the 40-somethings. And what was remarkable is you did see so much pent-up demand among younger people who have just been sitting, waiting on the sidelines, wanting to access vaccine. And I think the mentality for them is, uh, if if you baby boomers don't want this, we'll take it. Thank you very much. And that's what we saw. So now two things have happened. First of all, the number of people who say that they are not comfortable with AstraZeneca um, has shrunk. And that's from data that, that we released yesterday. Uh, and that is in part, I think, due to this opening up to younger ages. I think it's also because public health officials got very sharp with their messaging uh, in the wake of that polling uh, and really did a bit of a full court press talking about the relative safety of it, talking about, yes, risk of blood clots, but you know what, the risk of blood clots is much higher if you actually get COVID, which is not what you want. So we saw those two factors uh, playing simultaneously Now, more people have comfort levels with AstraZeneca and fewer people are saying, look, if it was the only option uh, available to me, I would not get it. So a shrinkage in the number of people who don't trust it and a further shrinkage in the number of people who say they won't take it. That is
1: so fascinating, right? Just just to show you how that changes. Also, what did uh, your survey tell us about uh, people's feelings towards the Johnson & Johnson, which we know is going to start arriving in Canada this week?
8: Also very interesting the way public opinion can ebb and flow and change and morph. So this time two weeks ago, Johnson & Johnson had a comfort level uh, among 70% of Canadians. So it, it, it was something that Canadians were more comfortable with uh, than they were with AstraZeneca. Then what happens, you see a pause in the United States where the U.S. uh, administration says, you know what, we're going to stop administering J&J because we're concerned about side effects, because we're concerned about blood clots. What happens, the amount of, uh, the the level of trust or comfort that Canadians have with Johnson & Johnson tumbles 16 points. That's massive. That is absolutely massive. So we know these things can change, Sometimes they change for the good. Sometimes they change for the worse. But just as public health officials and doctors really uh, had to to get their messaging very sharp and polished around AstraZeneca, they may have to do the same thing for Johnson & Johnson.
1: I know that one thing that uh, you have been polling about all throughout this pandemic is people's willingness to get vaccinated. What has that shown you?
8: The story there is one of steady progression simi so what we see on that front is uh right now to date 71 percent the vast majority of canadians say they either want to be vaccinated as soon as possible or they already have had at least one dose um when you consider what that number was last fall i know last fall sounds like a million years ago but when we think about last september when that number was was like 38 39 percent you've seen a really steady march of people uh going from a place where they were kind of wanting to hang back on the sidelines and say i don't know let's wait and see i'm not sure about the the efficacy of these vaccines i'm not sure if they're safe to really just think you know take that needle and stick it in my arm please right now
1: interesting okay so there is still a little bit of vaccine hesitancy though out there and it sounds like it's the most in alberta
8: Yeah, it really depends on where you live, your age demographics, uh, and then whether you're somebody who is absolutely rejecting a vaccine. No way would I be vaccinated versus those saying they aren't sure. So if you live in Alberta, you live with uh, neighbors and friends who who comprise almost 30% of the population who are evenly divided between saying, they either aren't sure about getting a vaccine, right. or they absolutely won't get one. That's the highest level in the country. By contrast, in BC, you know it's it's lower than the national average, close to fourteen percent. But across the country, you have, on average, about one in ten people saying they're not sure if they, uh, sorry, they won't be vaccinated. They're, they're absolutely rejecting mm. a vaccine. So, public health officials, I mean, you can you can deal with those 1 in 10 and still reach herd immunity, yeah, right? Exactly. You can write them off. But it's those unknown, hesitant people. It's the ones who say, I'm not sure. Um, these are the folks that public health officials are really going to have to start working on.
1: Fascinating stuff. Shachi, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Shachi Curl, president of Angus Reed.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You know, some people try their whole lives to get that Guinness World Record. Our next guest has managed to do that for the lowest female vocal note. Joy Chapman is with us, a Canadian music artist. Good morning, Joy. Good morning. How are you? I'm up. (laughs) (laughs) So am I. I know (laughs) it's early for a lot of people. So Joy, how do you describe the music that you perform? What
8: kind of an artist are you? Uh, I'd say probably closest to country. We called it modern, uh, retro-modern country because I give a little bit more throwback, more to, like, uh, the fun of Shania and some of more closely related to Dolly Parton kind of writing.
1: Right. Now, listening to you talk, I would not guess that you would hold this kind of Guinness World Record, but when did you know that you could hit some of those low notes?
8: Uh... Well, probably as early as about grade two.
1: <laughs> really?
8: Yeah, they scaled me when I was very young um, in choirs, so they I could go up to the desk camp with the girls, but because I could also scale way down low, then I got stuck in alto tenor bass. Uh, so because they're always short on male singers, so I actually didn't get to use my upper range until later in life, and uh, yeah, just mostly sang male parts.
1: Okay, so how, how did that make you feel, though? Did you think that, you know, I just want to sing, like, the way I want to?
8: Yeah, I mean, you always think that. I think that's why I was doing an album, <laughs> because it's like, yeah, I'd like people to know more than just that I can hit really, really low notes.
1: <laughs> and yet, here you go. This is what you have the Guinness World Record for, yeah, right? I know. <laughs> how did this uh, world record come about? Tell me what happened.
8: Uh, Well, it was my little niece. I was giving voice lessons, and I just happened to be saying to her, I wonder how rare it is that I, you know, because I would show her I'd be scaling down off the end of the piano. And um, so she did a little research, and she's like, Auntie, it's it's, uh, the record's D2. You sing way lower than D2. And uh, so she's like, You should do that. So um, I just kind of talked to my managers, and they thought, well, you know, as an independent artist, it's very hard to rise above the noise because there's so many great artists out there and i have an album coming out and a world record seemed like a good idea to get some attention and boy
1: has it ever gotten you attention hasn't it
8: (laughs) yeah (laughs) a lot more than i
1: figured (laughs) okay so tell me what does it take to have like a guinness world record certified what kind of process did you have to go through
8: that is a long and tough road um So you have to submit for them to give you a special number. Once you have that, then it depends on the record that you're holding. But for mine, it's the difficulty of finding a microphone and a sonogram, engineers that can read sonograms um, to uh, basically, because where I'm going is in the sub base level, so it's very hard for even recording equipment and sonograms, um, to pick up all my notes. Um, so it takes a lot of, a lot of fooling around. So, um, yeah, you have to do two engineers, two special music experts. I was very lucky to have Sanders, uh, Whitting as one of them, and he teaches at SFU. Um, and this is a lot uh, of work jump lot
0: for.
8: Yeah, and then you have to scale down from an octave above where a minimum of an octave above where you're thinking that your lowest note will be. and you have to do it a cappella. And when you're wow. going that low, you can't hear um, it becomes very difficult to hear the, the sound changes. So I'll, I think we did probably 2,400 takes or so over a year where I was like practicing going down and and feeling my way down feeling where I'm going because the accuracy of the notes has to be there and um (laughs) so this took a
1: year this is like a year-long process
8: yeah yeah well and and I we had some mishaps too because my mom died on one of the attempts oh and then uh video guides screwed things up and because I have to be filmed an hour ahead of when the attempt to make sure I don't ingest anything you're not allowed gum candy nothing wow. um, so all I'm allowed is water and the camera has to follow you everywhere so for Pete's sakes make sure that you go to the bathroom the hour before and don't <laughs> swallow too much water because that camera's going with you.
1: Joy so. I gotta tell you I am <laughs> amazed by this process
8: that was a lot more work than I thought it was. <laughs> A lot of people don't realize how much goes in. And 30% fail rate is on paperwork. And it's very confusing, the paperwork, everything that has to be signed off on. Uh, It's an intricate process.
1: How relieved were you, though? Like, what kind of feeling was that when it came back to you that? Yep, you did it.
8: Well, that's the thing. I don't look excited on the film because you don't honestly know. It's like, how do I be excited? Yes, we know that I can do this. And the guys have heard me over and over and go way lower because I was stressed that day because so many things had gone wrong and you don't know. Right. I was so uptight. I couldn't hold my vocals as normally I do. Um, So we want to do it again because, of course, I can go way lower. But I was just totally stressed that day. Crazy. Yeah, so you can't can't just, like, let go and go, yay, I got it, because it's like, I have no idea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Well, Joy, I want to make sure that you get recognition for your new album too. So do you have a website that people can check out and get more information?
8: Yes. Uh, the Okay, is, uh, is our website. So anything Joy Chapman Music, basically uh, you can find me on Twitter, on social. I am on Spotify. You can stream my music. You can say, play Joy Chapman music. I think Santa Claus drank all my beer last night comes up first, though. (laughs) So you might want to skip through there. We're not at Christmas time yet. No, not yet. (laughs) Thank goodness. Um,
1: Now, can you go through the process with us? Can you tell us like, just give us an idea, maybe try to get to that low note or how you get there?
8: Yeah, it's it's actually, I have a a syndrome called hypermobility syndrome which we theorize is why I'm able to go so low and so high um, because it allows me, and that's why I have to be relaxed as well, um, because it allows my vocal larynx to drop lower than most humans.
1: So are you relaxed right now? Can you give
8: it a shot? Um, Sure. It doesn't translate so well over the phone though, I will warn you. Okay. (laughs) Do what you can. La, la, la,
7: la, 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 la.
1: There you go. <laughs> Joy,
8: if I didn't know that was you, I would have thought somebody was pulling my leg. I know it's it's hilarious because yeah, you can see it on the videos I do. Uh, I came up with an interesting one. I just started doing TikTok and I did uh, vocal limbo. How low can you go? And then I did a scale from C three down off the piano to G sharp zero. Um, That's
1: crazy. Yeah. That is absolutely <laughs> crazy. So do all your students, like your niece, want you to just keep doing that? Like you must be asked to do this all
8: the time. Oh yeah, yeah. Now it's like I said, oh, another dog and pony show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it in front of classes. I've done it all over. But yeah, my vocal teachers used to get freaked out as I was going down the piano because they're like, okay, stop now. I, y- you know, we really don't need to go lower.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're kind of freaking me out. You don't have to go yeah. any lower. Uh, well, Joy, listen, you've been a great sport. We thank you for doing this and congr- Congratulations on
8: the Guinness Thank World so Record. Much. I really appreciate you having me. Well, oh, best you. of
1: luck. That's Joy Chapman. She's a Canadian music artist. Check out her music too. Just Google Joy Chapman music. But the world record she just set, as you can tell, was for being able to hit the lowest female vocal. No, that was wild. Blew my mind as she was doing that. And you can check out the videos too of her doing that. So congratulations to Joy.